They say, if life gives you lemons, make lemonade. But what if life gives you the proverbial lemons, you press them, and apple juice comes out? In this episode, Pedro Rezende shares with us how he came to be a researcher after a stint in industry, and how, after accepting some hard nose from the universe and reorienting, he ended up being exactly where he wanted to be at the outset. If they want someone who is skilled at a certain topic, why not to start my CV with the experience that I've assumed and I, where I can show that I have that skill? Like, uh, how can I show that I have the, all the transferable skills that they need? I, I did not have that effort. I was more focused on putting on a paper all the academic accomplishments that I did, which it's a very big mistake. Welcome to Papa PhD with David Mendez, the podcast where we explore careers and life after grad school with guests who have walked the road less traveled and have unique stories to tell about how they made their place in a world of constantly evolving rules. Get ready to go off the beaten path and hop on for an exciting new episode of Papa PhD. So this week, I'm bringing you Pedro Rezende. Pedro holds a PhD in basic and applied biology and has developed a number of projects on the side of his research, namely activities around managing communities of PhD students. And he'll tell us a little bit more about that later on. Uh, and Pedro is also co-founder and director of Chaperone, an online platform where science students and professionals can browse and look online for one-on-one -on -one sessions with career consultants. So clearly he has the PhD community, you know, very close to his heart. So now I'm going to ask Pedro to talk a little bit about himself, how he came into science and, uh, you know, what twists and turns brought him to where he is today. Welcome, Pedro. Hi, thank you very much for the invitation. And uh, I'd like to first congratulate you on uh, the very nice collection of inspirational stories that you have, uh, that you have gathered. I think they are very resourceful for, for those of us who are early researchers uh, to find an inspiration to guide us. And it's a pleasure to be part of it. Well, it's my pleasure, definitely. <laughs> so how did you come into science and, and what was your path in, uh, in your science uh, career? So I, my, first of all, my career does not make a lot of sense uh, looking forward, but it does make sense looking backwards. Uh, but I must say that I entered the university, uh, so I entered uh, the degree in biology here in Porto, wanting to work in ethology, to, to work in a zoo or something where I could study animals' behavior, which is something that I never did. <laughs> But uh, at the end of my studies, I started to be fascinated about genetics, and that's how I started. Uh, I started in a, in a population genetics uh, research group. It was my first professional experience, studying lactose intolerance in, in different, uh, in different uh, populations from Africa and Europe. And uh, from there, uh, I tried to continue in academia, but I failed. But surprisingly, I found uh, a position in industry, which led me to a very different type of role. I worked in bioprocess optimization, 
And from, from there, again, I wanted, then I wanted to stay in industry and I, I failed again. <laughs> so I could not find a position in industry, which I was loving to work. Then I decided to go back to academia and pursue a PhD. And at that stage, I, I was lucky to enter a very cool program called GABA PhD program, which allowed me to pick the area of study that I wanted to do my PhD, which was what I did. And after being exposed to very different classes, I became fascinated about uh, developmental biology. And I decided to do my PhD on that area, on stem cells and developmental biology. And then I came back to Porto as a postdoc to work as a researcher in, in that area, more in the interface between stem cells and, and um, oncobiology. Can I ask you a question? You've already talked about different things. Uh, that, that first group that you worked in, uh, genetics of lactose intolerance, it was in Portugal? Correct. Uh, what about the industry, uh, the industry job that you, that you then got? So... Yeah, I can talk a little bit about that transition. So at that time, I, I really wanted to do academic research, but I applied for PhD positions and I, and I was not getting any offer. So I decided, well, let's try industry. And a lot of professors told me, well, if you go to industry, it's a path of no return. You'll never be able to, to go back to academia. And it scared me a little bit because I, at that time, I really wanted to do academia. I was more into trying to research in, in an industry setting just as a learning experience. But anyway, uh, the, the future years proved that they were wrong. <laughs> and, uh, and I applied to this program that is, is still ongoing in Portugal called the Enough Contact, uh, which selects the top graduates from different areas of studies to, to go abroad uh, to do an internship on a top company of their area of uh, studies. I, I went to Pfizer which is a very well-known pharmaceutical company. At that time, I went to, to the, their European Z quarters for research and development in Sandwich in the UK. And uh, yeah, I was challenged to optimize the production of a certain medicine. And we had small bioreactors, 10 liters, that mimic the conditions that they have on the very huge scale of bioreactors. And we, we tried to play with settings like oxygen concentration, uh, amount of bacteria that you put in a media, medium ingredients to see if in the, at the end of one week you have uh, two or three more grams of uh, whatever medicine you were producing. That's great. Excellent. Uh, so how was your experience? It was, was it your first experience abroad? It was my first experience outside of my parents' uh, home and outside of Portugal. It was, it, it was well, <laughs> a, funny, a funny fact. The, the enough contact to, uh, program does not allow you to choose the country where you go. They, they, it's, it's, a, it's a condition that you have to accept. They can send you to China, Japan, uh, Australia, England, they, they pick. And I was asked, which is the, the least favorite country where you wanna go? And I, my choice was England, that's where <laughs> I was sent to. So, my start, I would say, was not easy because my expectations were quite low. I, I, I'm a surfer, I, uh, and, and I really love uh, good weather. So England was not, those probably were the reasons why England was not my number one choice. Uh, but uh, like many things in my life, uh, my expectations proved wrong. So I end up in England, but in a coast city. 
uh, I lived in Ramsgate, which is in, in Kent in the south. So I did have, uh, uh, I could see the, the, the ocean, which was important for me. And um, the fact that I spoke English uh, quite fluently helped me a lot in, in terms of feeling uh, integrated in, in the society, which, which now I know if I would have gone to a country that, where uh, English is not a native uh, um, language, probably will, will be a barrier. Uh, and I ended up working in a very uh, good company with very work very nice work conditions, which uh, increased uh, my motivations to work and was a very good add-on to my CV in terms of uh, feeling, uh, getting noticed. You talked about two very important things, which is, uh, and in this case, you didn't choose it. They put you there, but choosing the place you're going to go if you go abroad, a place where something that's important to you, you will find like the sea, the ocean in your case. It, it must have been a relief. Mm-hmm. Yes, and it must have been an anchor. I actually, oh, the geography. So, if you looked afar, maybe you could see the coast of <laughs> the coast of Portugal. No, I, I'm joking. But that that must have been important. Uh, now, th- did they also offer housing and everything? You were like all taken care of on that side. Well, just for the first month. Um, after that, we had to to find ourselves like a, a place to to live. It was not like very difficult, but it was not easy. Like it, it was doable. Um, they had, a, they, they provided assistance uh, for us to, to find a place, um, which I found after in like two weeks. Okay. And uh, did that, was there, I'm just curious about this program. Was there a stipend? Did you have a point of contact? How, how was, you told me the program exists still, right? The program still exists. And uh, I don't, I think I participated, yes, I participated in the, this was in 2007 in the 11th edition. So it is quite, it's a quite old program. I think it, the essence of the program is still there. And I think it's a very, very good program for uh, people who have just graduated or, or later stages uh, to apply if they want to do an internship in, a, in, a, in an international company. I, I would also add that uh, like many things in uh, in Portugal happen, unfortunately. The the conditions are not as good right now as they were in the past. Uh, politics are driven by numbers. So there's a lot more internships right now so that they can say that they give 300 positions in, in, in this program. But the salary conditions and the number of months that you, you stay abroad uh, have diminished as well as the number of... Um, hours of training before you go abroad. At the time when I did it, it I had a, a two-weeks internship uh, with very, very good professors in very different fields of, uh, of study, which was very good because I came from a background of biology and suddenly I was having classes in finances, international marketing, with people that had backgrounds on, on, on engineering or, or law. So it was very good to, 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 to have that networking and learning experience with people from different backgrounds. And then once, you, once we were abroad, the salary was good enough for us to have a good quality of life. Uh, and I, luckily, I didn't have to rely on help from my family uh, for, for my daily expenses. Excellent. This sounds like it was 
preparing you for things that came later, I guess, and uh, probably for your experience during your PhD. We'll talk about this in a minute and where you went and what you did. But it's the first time I hear about this program and uh, sounds like it, it was a super interesting experience uh, and that, uh, that for you, it was successful in a way, although in the end, you thought, okay, now I'm going to get a job in industry and that didn't pan out. Yeah, the reason for that is also a funny fact, actually, is I graduated before the Bologna Convention. And, uh, well, in Portugal, there was not a lot of jobs in industry in, in the biotechnology field. So I wanted to continue in the industry, so I applied abroad. And the problem was most of my applications, they, were, they, they only had three levels of uh, uh, for, for someone to enter in the company, either a BSc, a master or a PhD. And I did a, a licenture here in Portugal and I was feeling very frustrated because they could only accept me for the BSc level, not for the master level, despite the fact that I studied for five years to do that. And, and the salary differences between the BSc and the master are, are very significant, uh, more than even from the master to the PhD, at least at that time which meant, for instance, that I was doing an internship and if I wanted to continue or to go to another company to work as a BSc, my salary would be almost two-thirds of what I was earning on an internship, which for me didn't make any sense. So at that time, before the Bologna Convention, I understood that I either had to take either a master or a PhD. Uh, and uh, I, in the end, I decided to do a PhD instead of a master. And uh, so after that, you came back, you got into the GABA PhD program. Uh, how did this experience abroad, which is, you know, I guess not a lot of people around you had in the program, how did that uh, impact your, uh, you know, your interviewing and, uh, in, and getting into the program? It impacted a lot. Uh, so I, I actually applied for the GABA PhD program before I went to this experience and I, I was not accepted and to other PhD programs as well. And what I learned from, from those rounds of interviews in PhD programs is that a lot of very good people apply. And at, at that very early stage of your career, there are no, it's not easy for you to stand out from other people who are applying from factors other than your grade. And my grades were not fantastic. I was not the top 10% uh, of, uh, of people who applied to these programs. And in the end, they select the top 10%. So one thing that I learned uh, that is true for interviews for PhD programs, but for, it's true for many other uh, types of interviews, is that uh, sometimes more than 100 people are interviewed and you have to think about how is gonna that cohort of people look like and if there's anything that you can do that can make you stand out. And, and when I was abroad, I was thinking about this and I, I clearly understood that the fact that I had international experience was a big point, but the fact that I was in industry and coming back to academia, that's really unusual. And, and when, I, when I did my application using these arguments as me first and out, really like we, we spent most of the interview talking about what kind of motivations could someone have to move from industry to academia. And I, I, I think that that helped me a lot uh, to be selected. And so how was the, the GABA PhD uh, experience for you? What, what did you end up uh, you know, choosing and where did you end up going? 
Well, the GABA PhD program is a program that I have very close to my heart. Uh, indeed, that was one of the motivations where in the end of my studies, I decided to, to found the Alumni Association of the program. And the reason for that is because the, the coordinators of the program had this visionary experience that the PhD uh, students they select, they should be exposed to classes in very different fields of biology. So we have classes on population genetics, ocobiology, parasitology, uh, statistics, um, stem cells, and immunology, neuroscience. Uh, and the idea is, okay, let's expose these students to many different fields and make them work together in all these different disciplines and see what is their passion. For Let's allow them to find their passion. And then the magic is also on the second step is, okay, let's... Let's then pick the laboratory where they want to go and do their research. And if that laboratory happens to be abroad, let us allow them to go abroad and do their research because most likely they will go to top laboratories, learn a lot, and most of them will want to come back to Portugal and bring that knowledge back to, to, to the scientific community in Portugal. And the history proved right. So there's a lot of GABA students that came back to Portugal and led very successful laboratories. Some of them are still abroad, but also have collaborations with Portugal. But um, it's a very successful program in terms of uh, the number of people who complete their PhDs, the number of people, the, the type and number of publications, the money that has been brought to Portugal from, from competitive research grants and, and, and many other factors. So you were selected in a cohort of how many that year? I think it was around 100, a little bit more, a little bit less, and 12 students were selected. Cool. So you took a turn, and then you, you did a 180, and then there you were in the PhD program that at the beginning you wanted to go into. And uh, so what came next? So you did, you did all these courses, you were exposed to many things, and you, you said, uh, you mentioned before, that the, the, stem cell, uh, the stem cell part really rung a bell for you and, uh, and, and that, that you felt a calling to follow that. How, how did you follow up into there? I think it was by being exposed to research on, uh, let's put this broad area of research that, that uh, can be mentioned as the area that, or cells talking to each other in a living organism, which can be developmental biology, but can be other things like uh, oncobiology can be also included in, in this broad area. But I was fascinated how cells talk to each other in a living organism, organism respecting that complexity and um, how things can be quite, quite, quite complex in vivo instead of in vitro. And uh, in, in this type of questions, stem cells play a very, very important role. Uh, they are the cells within our adult organs that replenish all the cells that we lose on a daily basis on the organs that, that do have regeneration. And um, yeah, that's how I became fascinated by watching videos of uh, regeneration uh, of tissues and, and, and similar videos. Cool. And, and so once you finished your courses, I guess you were offered the choice of where do you want to go now do your research? Where did you end up uh, going and, and what did you research? So I, I, I always told uh, people that you should do a PhD or you should work in a city where you, you feel 
comfortable or you feel happy. And my dream was always to, to live in California. So I, I must put my money where my mouth is, like they say in the US. <laughs> so I, I applied to visit, uh, well, I visit San Diego in California, which is a very well-known place for surfing, but it's also a very well-known place for biomedical research. So uh, actually, a like many different institutes are there found. They, they design the area of La Jolla, which is a, a city within the San Diego. Uh, to be a biotech hub. So you have UCSD, which indeed is one of the, the universities in the US with more success in the area of medicine and biology. But you also have uh, the Scripps Institute, the, UC, uh, the, the Salk Institute where I work, the Berman Institute. You have the um, Greg Venter Research Institute also there. Um, so I, I end up choosing Salk because I, I found very interesting laboratories there on areas that I was fascinated about. Uh, and the SOC is a very well-known uh, research institute worldwide with, uh, with different Nobel Prizes already awarded to, to researchers within the institute with uh, research outputs that are, I mean, not comparable to those that I was finding here in Portugal, very, very, very competitive. And um, yeah, I found a great scientific atmosphere there. And I said, okay, this is a place, this is a city where I enjoy living. I, I have the world-class researchers around me. Why not? Um, and the decision, okay, from, from these arguments that I just explained seemed easy and they were based on these arguments. But on the personal side, it, it was not a very easy decision to make. Uh, even though this was always what I wanted to experience living in California, leaving behind your family and friends to live in a different continent, it's never easy, never. And uh, there are ups and downs uh, that I had during the five years that I was there. Um, and yeah, you, you learn how to live through that process. Yeah, and then being on the West Coast, you know, of all things, you're even further than... Yes, yes. It means that if I wanted to come home, a 16, 18 hours flight was... Was required. Was on the plan. So did, yeah. you, did you just out of curiosity, you know, because one of the things that I, I like to talk about is a PhD is a very external experience. You, you're doing something in the world and you're creating something and following an idea. But as you were kind of alluding to, there's an internal path also that you have to go through. And of growth and if you leave home of, you know, of growing up in this independence, but also you may deal at times with solitude. And I imagine given that, that these are places that are rich in, in terms of teams that are working and, and probably a lot of students that also come from abroad, there must have been a community uh, around the Salk Institute and, and around the university or the academic universe that you probably uh, were able to be part of. But maybe tell us a little bit about what strategies and what did you have to do to kind of uh, make that distance worth it uh, in a way and keep balance inside while you were working outside? Yeah, well, that's a very, very good question. So I was lucky to have one of my best friends living there in San Diego already, which is a friend of mine who is also a researcher. And we did high school together, university together. 
and he was really there. And that was like a tremendous help for, for my adaptation in, in the beginning and, and throughout the next years for sure. But then as, as most of expatriates, what you do is you try to connect with the other communities of, uh, of expatriates. Uh, and that means other Portuguese there, but also other Spaniards, uh, and Mexicans, uh, Germans, uh, whatever. Every, everyone that was uh, living outside their homes, they feel a connection with you because they, they're going through the same uh, obstacles that, that you have. And I, I was lucky to, to, to gather that community there. Uh, so I met a lot of interesting people that uh, supported me, that go out for, for drinks with me, go to the cinema, clubbing or surfing. Uh, and basically occupy your mind uh, through the through the day so that you're not uh, so you don't have your mind in in the birthday of your sister that you're missing or or the very special family dinner that you're not going to be able to attend uh, and all, all those all those things so i guess there were clubs or uh, there were groups of expats that were also meeting up and uh, going out for beers and things like that yeah, there were organized uh, types of uh, gatherings. I I tend to gather my my community through non-organized uh, type of events, but I did participate in a few. They're more organized. Um, but yeah, in terms of in terms of more like social gatherings, but then in professionally, I also. I, I, I was elected to be the graduate student's representative from the South, which is a, for me was a very uh, good honor to, to have that. Suddenly I was in a world-class institute with more than 25 different nationalities and the Portuguese PhD student was the one elected to represent the PhD students. Uh, for me, it was a very humbling experience. That's very interesting to me. Just, just a, I'd, I'd like to ask something about that. What role did you play? Who did you meet? How, what was the role of, you know, what were you, because you were doing your research, you know, you, you said uh -huh. already five years there doing your research. What extra tasks and, and responsibilities did you have by being the representative? So we, we the, the representative had the chair in, in a society that was called the Society of Research Fellows which basically had people from the academic services, people that represented the faculty, people that represented the postdocs. And as, as the Society of Research Fellows uh, goals, we, we tried to organize events or make recommendations to the, to the board of directors to defend the interests of the, the, the people that you were representing, in my case, the PhD students. So that involved many different in initiatives from organizing the, the annual uh, party, from organizing symposiums, for organizing uh, um, different training events, uh, many, many, many different uh, initiatives. Super interesting. So this means that already there, you were not just doing your research. You already were putting on different hats and, uh, and trying different things and being in these meetings with a bunch of uh, quite important people, I imagine. So for sure, looking at, at what you did later on, which we'll talk about soon, I guess that was also formative for you. 
Yes, 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 very formative. I, I, one thing that I haven't mentioned yet is that at the age of six, I started playing volleyball. And I played volleyball until I was uh, more or less 25. And uh, I played semi-professionally from 18 to 22, 23 years old. And I played in my local team, Sporting HP, which was one of the best teams uh, at, uh, at, uh, at that time and, and still is. And we were six times national champions. And I was team captain from, uh, for many years. So why am I saying this? Because from that experience, I kind of uh, had this uh, characteristic that I was comfortable in, in, in gathering people and leading teams. And I found that most people in research uh, do, that do not play sports or do not have other type of uh, experience outside of research, uh, sometimes they lack that, that that leadership uh, skills and and by assuming these roles were in in a way uh, an easy way for me to uh, materialize some of the learning experience i have for my sports career i guess that is so interesting you're the second guest that i have who has done fairly high level uh, sports uh, competition level and that tell that clearly through their story that experience, even if it was at a young age, uh, still has impact on what they do today and, and how they go into projects. And uh, it's super, super interesting. I would love to, 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 to explain this better, but I think the importance is so, so big. Um, like imagine like when you're 10 years old and you have uh, 20, 10 years old together and you have to explain to them that there are individual goals and collective goals. <laughs> And what is the best way to tune them? Even in, even in companies where, where you have people who are already adults, sometimes this is difficult. Imagine in 10 years old or 12 years old. Or years <laughs> yeah, you know, I have a nine-year-old and I can't, I can't imagine having that conversation. Well, anyway, eventually it'll come. Oh, well, I'm, I'm super happy that you went there because I find it's, it's, uh, it's again, it's the second time that, that this type of experience arises uh, in, in, in the interviews. And... Uh, totally makes sense uh, because you kind of you for your brain is formatted already uh, in a in a way that that you go into projects and and you think about things in in a more strategic way i guess and uh, very 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 cool um we're we're reaching almost the half point of the of the interview but now i just like to kind of talk about the 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 flight back to portugal because i guess everything went well in your phd you did your 5 years at salk institute which must have been challenging at times like you say but very fulfilling then when you finished where did you defend despite the fact that i did all my phd abroad in the us i defended in portugal because i was affiliated to the university of porto so i defended my phd studies my phd studies here in in, in porto so at first it was hard to leave but then there's the decision of flying back. Was that, uh, was that easy? Was that pre-decided? Or were you now attached to your new community, to your new uh, place of living? It was not a decision that I took like in a day. It was a digested decision. But once I made them, I was 100% uh, sure that was the right decision. That is not to say that it was easy. Even though I, know, I knew it was the right decision, uh, it was complicated for sure. It's like uh, almost like leaving a, a, 
starting a new life altogether. Because after five years living in, in one place, uh, I had to leave all my friends, all, all the things that I was equated to. Uh, and I must say also that professionally, if, if I would make my decisions, my life decisions, single uh, based on my professional reasons, I would have not lived uh, the US. But uh, from personal reasons, and uh, that is not a secret, uh, I, I wanted to be close to my family. Uh, I, I decided that if I continue, at that point where I finished my PhD, if I started a postdoc or if I started a, another position, that would probably mean that I would stay at least four more, five more years there. And I knew uh, that probably it would be even harder to come back after that period. So I, I knew that I was at the point where I had to think if I wanted to live in the US forever, let's put it this way, or if I wanted to make my, the rest of my life um, in Europe. And uh, I, I decided for Europe because for me being close to my family uh, was a very important point. Excellent. So we'll take a little break now and then we'll talk about the next chapter, which is coming back to Europe and uh, doing a bunch of things, which I'm curious uh, and I want to talk to you about. Before going on with the interview, I want to thank you for listening to the show. If you like an episode and feel that it's helped you or inspired you in any way, share it with your friends. Maybe it will inspire them too. If you have a question or a theme that you'd like to see covered in our interviews, you can now simply go to anchor.fm forward slash PhD and record a message to be featured in one of our future episodes. And be sure to follow Papa PhD on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. So uh, we had stopped at the moment where uh, Pedro was uh, deciding: uh, Do I stay and uh, go for a postdoc and maybe make my life away from my homeland, from Portugal, or do I go back? And he decided very clearly at a certain point: No, I'm going back to Europe, and I'm going to find my my professional path there and go back to be close to my to my family and that's what we're going to talk about now so pedro you came back and uh, and how did that go you know getting back getting your connections back and and getting your first position uh, now back in europe well uh, the, the f one of the decisions i took uh, and this was even before i decided to come back to portugal was that after my PhD, I would stop for a, for a period of time to reflect on, uh, on my career. And I did stop for six months uh, after I finished my PhD, which I think was, I've done it before. I stopped six months before uh, I finished my university to do my first job. And uh, for those people who, who can afford that uh, financially or for, from other reasons, I strongly recommend. It's, it's, a, it's a, a nice uh, way to reflect on what you accomplished and where you, you want to go. So it, because I had that time, the, the adaptation was easier because I was not pressured to, to find a job immediately or to, and, and it also because meant that I had more time to, to, for my social life and to reconnect with my friends that were here. Um, but uh, my initial goal when I came was to find a job in industry. 
after my PhD here in Portugal. The, at that time, the, after five years of my PhD, the, the, I felt like there were more opportunities in biotech uh, than before I left. But uh, again, like, like many times before in my, my career, I did not get the position in industry that I wanted. So I considered pivoting again, and I started applying for postdoctoral positions in academia. And I got a few offers. And uh, one of them here at I3S at the laboratory of Dr. Claudio Sunko seemed very uh, good for me because it allowed me to, to do the research uh, on a, the, an area that I really found uh, very interesting and develop my own line of research and allow me to simultaneously uh, do some other roles uh, that I wanted to dedicate uh, uh, apart from my role as a researcher. And just going back to the trying to get into industry, how was having a PhD? The question I want to get to is, was there a determinant factor that you think didn't help you in getting those positions? Or was it simply that there are not so many spots available in Portugal? I think uh, both reasons. So the the number of jobs were not many, but uh, looking back, and now I know much more about this, uh, I know that I was unprepared in my applications for industry. Uh, I spent many years in academia. Uh, my mindset was uh, on, on academic terms. And... Uh, I know now that the way I wrote my CVs, the way I wrote my motivation letters, the way I approached the companies uh, was far from ideal. And I invested a lot of time in career development after that. Uh, and now I know a lot of the mistakes that I've done at that time that probably were reasons why I was uh, not getting positive answers from the applications I, I was doing. Can you share one or two uh, major ones with the audience? Of course, of course. So, so for instance, in the CV, the way we write our CVs in, in, in academia is fundamentally different from, from the way we write CVs for industry. For, for industries, they, they don't care about your publications, for instance. And, and I was giving a, why should I put my publications on my number one page of my CV if they don't care? Uh, things like that or uh, if they want someone who is skilled at uh, a certain topic why not to start my CV with the experience that I've assumed and I, where I can show that I have that skill like uh, how, how can I show that I have the, all the transferable skills that they need I, I did not have that effort I was more focused on putting on a paper all the academic accomplishments that I did, which is, it's, it's a very big mistake. Mm -hmm. Okay, that makes sense. So you, you didn't tailor your CV and the cover letter, etc. You would have done it differently today. Yeah, I, well, I, I did know where I was applying and I tried to, to write my motivation letter and explain how I can do that function uh, properly. But I know that in the way that I wrote my CV and, and my motivation letter, there were much better ways to do that than the ways that I that I did. Much more targeted, I guess. Yes. So you started a postdoc, and this was in the domain of, of uh, uh, stem cell biology. And now you're still, uh, you're a research associate now and still uh, developing research in that domain. But you have done different things on the side, let's say. And uh, 
I, I think it's really important um, and, and really interesting first that, that uh, throughout your life you've been able to develop, you know, you were the representative of the PhDs at the Salt Institute. Now, as a researcher, you're able to develop other activities that are close to your heart. Namely, you mentioned it before, creating uh, the, the, the Alumni Association for the GABA uh, PhD program, which is uh, something that's very, very cool. Uh, and, and you can talk a little bit about what, what it is, what that offers to, to PhD alumni, uh, because people listening out there, maybe they could think uh, of something similar that they could, they could start creating on their side. So please tell us a little bit about your side interests and your side projects, which, which are not few. So uh, from the beginning, and by beginning meaning when I came back and I started in Porto at I3S, uh, at, the, uh, at the time I decided with the two colleagues of mine to found the Alumni Association for the PhD program. And I cannot stress enough how to found and manage professional associations can be a uh, fantastic learning experience for roles outside academia. Let's say, for instance, as an entrepreneur or as a community manager or as a project manager or anything that involves management of projects and people. Um, so we started that project with the main goal of... Uh, when we were students in GABA, we had this... Uh, natural way to collaborate with each other as students of the program and we wanted to for that not to finish when we finished our studies and that also coincide with a time where there were enough alumni students to make like a, a good community so we decided to go formally to create uh, something that was legally recognized we we wrote all the um, objectives that we uh, wanted to accomplish, how we could accomplish them, through which initiatives. We start gathering uh, working teams uh, for, to pursue those goals. And uh, it has been a, a very successful project. Uh, so far we have, at the time I was not the president, Andre, my colleague, was the president of the association. Then it was me for a few years, and now is uh, Ligia, another colleague of mine, but to, we've all been very lucky to have an, a lot of people working with us, and, and our initiatives are quite fruitful. We have uh, projects on, that go on science outreach, on scientific communication, and, um, and uh, it has been uh, very successful. Mm. So, and all this based on the network of, of students of the GABA PhD program? Uh, yes, on, on students that uh, uh, have enrolled and, and finished the, the GABA program. Can you describe one of the latest, uh, let's say, outreach or, or, or science communication programs that, uh, that you developed? Yes, so we have, for instance, uh, uh, an internship or a summer internship for, um, in laboratories of GABA alumni. That is the, the Maria de Souza uh, Summer Research Program. Uh, uh, to pay homage to our coordinator and founder of the GABA PhD program, uh, Maria de Souza. Uh, and um, it consists on an internship that can go from two weeks to one month in uh, different laboratories of GABA alumni. And it's a full paid internship uh, designed for people who 
want to have their first experience in a laboratory. So, so to do that uh, and to be paid to do that is not a very uh, common um, internship that you can find in Portugal. So we we are we have normally many applicants each year, and uh, this year I think we have five uh, internships going on. And the students tend to be very happy with the, the learning that they get and the experience that they get. And um, yeah, it's one of the initiatives that we have. Another one is in partnership with the Ciencia Viva, which is also a very famous uh, institution in science in Portugal. And uh, Ciencia Viva has uh, summer internships for uh, young high school students to do um, internships in many different laboratories across the country but in the we found that at the end of their internships they were not challenged to write a report or to present their their work in in any kind of material so we collaborated with Sensitive and said okay for those who work in the areas of life science which is the areas that are related to the GAP PhD program they can write a report about their internship and send it to us and the top three reports, we will award them uh, financially with a, with a financial award. And our goals was to, for those students who are doing those internships, to start to get experienced in, in summarizing the conclusions of their experience. What does it mean to write a report? What kind of uh, worries they should have in terms of uh, how... Uh, they should design the experiments, how to make controls, how they should be the, do, or how they should do the statistical analysis, and so on. Or what conclusions do, they could take? All very integral parts of the scientific process uh, that that they exactly. might not be aware exactly. of before doing such an internship. That's, that's exactly exactly very cool. And um, so the, I imagine there's a website we can share it in the end that that people can go uh, visit. But what other uh, what other things can you share uh, that that you've developed that you've done or that you've taken part in that that might be inspiring to the the listeners? So the the second project I would say that I uh, initiated in, in addition to my role as a researcher was in uh, policy advising. It was something that always interested me, but I never found a way to materialize this interest let's put it this way then i knew about this pro this uh, initiative is a think tank initiative called health parliament the first edition happened last year and the second edition is about to start where they invited people from different uh, fields related to health uh, medical doctors uh, scientists uh, communication experts nurses and so on uh, if they wanted to participate in this uh, think tank initiative uh, around six different themes to debate and to write uh, recommendations for the Portuguese government in terms of policies regarding health uh, uh, innovation. And um, it was a very good experience. I loved I met a lot of interesting people. I learned a lot. And uh, it definitely made me more aware about how important it is for scientists to be close to other sectors of the society, namely uh, the politicians. Uh, I think one of the number one, if I, 
if I would say the number one conclusion that I would take out of this experience is that it's surprising how many uh, political decisions are made without evidence. So evidence, evidence-based decisions in politics are not common. And for someone who works in science, this seems shocking, but, but it's true. It's true, and it is our role as researchers to defend that we must get the data to the politicians, the right data to the politicians, and to, uh, force is a strong word, but to, to make them be aware of this data and to use them to guide their decisions. Because I see no other way of, uh, of, uh, of doing good uh, politics. Yeah, yeah it's, it's great that, that such uh, events and platforms are created. Uh, so were politicians also taking part in, in this uh, health parliament? Yes, yes, some of them were. And they, I, I, I think that they, in general, they were very receptive and they, they, they collaborated with us with the very open-minded. And uh, so how did that come up? How did you learn about it? Uh, how, you know, how, how did you find that, that, that avenue? I heard about the program via social media. I honestly, I don't remember if I saw it on Facebook or in Twitter, but one of those. And I read the description. It sounded interesting. I said, well, let's apply. And uh, yeah, I was selected. They liked my, my, my application. Um, and uh, I was in a group dedicated to the, the, the theme of my group was to how to optimize uh, the impact of the knowledge we generate in, in, in health for the economy uh, and the health outcomes. Um, and uh, I had a very heterogeneous group in terms of uh, backgrounds uh, uh, and it was uh, very uh, challenging uh, because we always tend to overestimate the things that are uh, the problems that are closer to us and then yeah and then as a scientist I, I, I in, in the beginning the problems were related to science but then you're talking to a medical doctor or to an entrepreneur and you you have to hear their pains as well and see uh, make the exercise of prioritizing which is the most important thing or which is the thing that has more impact in the health of people when you think it in a, in a, in a country perspective it must have been a very enriching experience and uh, and it, it touches on a point that I, that I find very interesting too, which is um, interdisciplinary, you know, doing in interdisciplinary activities, whichever they are, getting implicated, meeting people from other domains and like cross-pollinizing from, you know, from other domains. Uh, for sure, listeners out there, if you can do something that gets you a little bit out of, of the science zone and maybe, uh, you know, close to the policy zone or uh, something that, that that's out of your comfort zone, it's, you know, it's a term that's very overused these days, but you can really learn a lot. And I think what Pedro just mentioned confirms that. You must have learned a lot, met very interesting people, and discussed ideas that you never dreamt that you would, you know, you would go into. Absolutely. I think interdisciplinary is like a top five <laughs> words for me if I would have to pick in terms of what is driving successful projects that I could see. From, from my experience, yeah. Excellent. Uh, so, again, you you know, this is something that 
that must have taken time. From what I'm hearing, for sure the balance is positive on your side of of, uh, having taken the time to take part in that. So again, where I want to go is don't be afraid to take some time to, to get involved in something a little bit on the side because it will enrich you as a as an adult, as a citizen, uh, as a professional. Uh, yes, I think for the experience I had in the US where I think it's approximately 40% of uh, researchers have other roles apart from their research, which is very different from what we see in Portugal. Uh, opened my mind also in terms of that aspect. It's very normal and it's recommended for for people as researchers to be involved in other projects. It benefits the society, it benefits research also ultimately. So, and this is true for researchers, but it's true for for other uh, fields of study. Nobody gains from everybody uh, being closed in their their environments, doing only that thing, uh, closed in their offices. We, as a society, we much talk to each other and work together in very different projects. So I think this brings us to your current more entrepreneurial project that I find very interesting. And that is kind of related because it brings together a bunch of the things that you've mentioned uh, before, uh, which is uh, a chaperone. Can you talk a little bit about that and uh, what, you know, what motivated you to, to go and to dive into that project? Yes, and uh, it's uh, currently the project that I'm most excited about, so, so I feel very happy to talk about it. And I think we started, if it was not uh, in the first minute, uh, it was on the second or third, uh, by me saying that uh, I cannot make sense of my career uh, looking forward, but I can definitely make sense of it by looking backwards. And this project, if now that we've talked a little bit about my path, I think it makes total sense, but I, I, there's no way I could predict that I would be doing this uh, 10 years ago. Uh, but what I felt uh, myself, and I saw a lot of my friends and colleagues uh, suffering from, was the, this difficulty to, to manage our careers. We, we scientists uh, lack proper career development services, most of scientists do not have career development services provided by the institutions. Uh, and we are at a time where we need it uh, definitely. So we, we, we know from statistics that uh, staying in academia is extremely difficult in all countries that where statistics have been uh, done. In the U.S., I think uh, if you if you started as academic researcher, for you to to become a PI is the chances are around eight percent. In, in, in the Royal Society in the U.K., estimated to be zero point four four percent to to become a professor and five uh, percent to stay in academia in other roles. Uh, in New Zealand, I think it's around one percent. Um, I don't know, I don't think there's data for Portugal, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's also low. Uh, And the problem is, despite the fact that, let's say, 90%, 95% of us are going to do a role that is not academic related, the majority of us are not trained to transition to that role. 
And that has a strong impact in the scientist's well-being and mental health also because people feel anxious. They produce less. Their productivity as is reduced. Some of us suffer from mental health problems, which is also one of the things that are coming out in studies that people are becoming more and more aware that scientists are exposed to, to mental health problems in a much more severe way than the overall population. For instance, depression has been found to be present in two out of five academics, which is four times higher than the overall population. It's interesting that you say that. I had a conversation not long ago with a professor who had visited a university's counseling uh, services. And uh, he said, uh, they told me, most of the people that were going uh, and using the counseling services were PhD students. And, and he said, and families of PhD students. So I'm glad that you actually mentioned it because it's something that I like to put out there because I think it's been a taboo for a long time and it has to stop to be because I think now, nowadays compared to you know, other generations, it does not need to be a taboo anymore. More and more things are diagnosable and you can give a name to what people are living or going through, be it anxiety, being a depression, like you mentioned, or, or other types of mental health issues. So I think it's very important that you mentioned that. And, and for sure, I feel that from what you're saying, one of the objectives of this project, which you haven't described yet, is to help people not fret so much, not hurt or not suffer so much, dealing with, with this uncertainty, which is going to be there. At the end of a PhD, the uncertainty is there. You just need to be ready for it. And you need to be, uh, and, and I'll let you talk about it a little bit more, you need to give yourself the tools to, you know, to kind of have a torchlight and, you know, oh, there's uncertainty, that's fine. I'm going to find my way and I'm going to carve my path, uh, in a sense. Uh, so again, I'm glad that you, that you mentioned the, 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 the question of mental health. I do think it's very important and... Um, Nowadays, if we're on you know, media talking about graduate studies, I think it's something that should be, that should be mentioned. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for, for, for those comments. Uh, but yeah, the, the project that we, we started, it's called Chaperon. And it started by us being worried about uh, scientists that do not have access to career development. So our... our Number one uh, goal was to develop a truly innovative way uh, for scientists to access to career development. We know that uh, there are solutions for career development current going on, but they are not effective because two out of three scientists mentioned in a survey that we, we've done in the international survey, they do not act, have access to career development at all. So we know that what are the problems? We, we understood that, for instance, uh, freelancers uh, that do career development do not reach uh, the majority of the scientists worldwide, uh, either because they don't have a very online, a very good online presence or because the fees of them traveling are quite high. And we know that institutions uh, uh, face uh, complicated decisions when hiring, or setting up a career development office because they, it's, an, it's a big uh, financial uh, budget to assume. So our solution was to create the first online marketplace for career development uh, specialized in science. So our, 
what we're trying to do is to put in a single place uh, an online platform similar to booking um, but instead of booking apartments you book uh, career development sessions so we we we've studied a lot about career development in science we we had a lot of meetings with the specialists in career development and we invited some of us some of those sorry uh, selected by us that we found that their uh, background was very interesting to be on a platform uh, available for scientists to browse and book sessions with them uh, from the comfort of their homes uh, on the topic they need at the time they need which is something that I, I've done career development. Uh, and I participated in career development initiatives and those were some of the frustrations I carried myself uh, through, throughout those sessions and uh, I heard uh, other colleagues suffering from the same. For instance, when an institute organized a career development fair or a career development workshop, you, you scientists that it's in that institute normally did not pick the consultant that comes to give that training. You did not pick the date when that happened. Uh, you did not pick the topic. You did, basically, like you could be a PhD student ending up doing a, a workshop on CV writing on your second year, but when you, you need it mostly was on your last year of PhD. That does, does not make any sense. And in our domain, the life sciences, uh, people are so taken in by by the research. There's so much time that you need to give to your research that a lot of people will see an invite to go to something and they'll be like, mm, I need to split my cells uh, and, and or whatever. There's an essay that I need to do and, and, and they won't go. So, so I see. So this, this allows them to, to do it on their own time in their own setting. Yes, we believe that's, a, that's an important factor. Excellent. It's, it's a great idea. Uh, so you did you just launched? We launched our social media this weekend. So our go live had just happened. Uh, we're gonna have a launching campaign happening throughout January, and in February we're gonna launch the the official website with the platform fully visible for anyone uh, who who goes on our website, which is www.chaperon.online. Dot online. Excellent. Well, I'm, I'll definitely put the link in, your, in the show notes of the episode. Uh, and I'll be curious to chat with you later on to have feedback on how, how things are going. I'd be very curious to, to see how, you know, how, what effect or what impact it's, it's having on, on the users. But I think it's a great, uh, it's a great idea and, uh, and I hope you have great success with it because for sure it's going to help some people out there. Now we're reaching the end of the episode. So uh, one thing that, that I always like to ask for, for the, the guests to do is, you know, based on, on their experience, in this case, you have experience in, in many different domains and starting from your sports career uh, at a very young age and being captain of a team, clearly, I think you're going to be able to, you know, to um, distill a, a little pearl of, of wisdom <laughs> or two for the, the, the uh, listeners out there to one keep the motivation because it can be like you said especially if you're abroad getting to year two three it can get difficult uh so how to keep the motivation and keep the eye on the prize right uh, that'd be one and two um given that you have uh, this experience in in uh career development for people who are already in their latest uh, stages of their of their PhD or uh, anyway that they're writing 
if there's no structure around them and uh, well of course you just mentioned chaperone which is <laughs> which is uh, going live but uh, if they're now trying to post for for jobs and they feel a bit lost i'd like to to give to give some advice on the motivation aspect and on okay now what tools can i use to make this transition as successful as possible yeah, I think, well, what I'm going to say is based on my personal uh, experience, so people take it as that. And uh, I, I have a strong uh, feeling about uh, sentences like, find the job you love and you'll never have to work again. Uh, I would say if I, had, if I was in front of all those students and their recommendations, to, to run away from people who say things like that. Uh, because they, these, these actually these are strong toxic message, messages that uh, I think uh, create a wrong uh, expectation about uh, what work is. And uh, I think we should leave uh, adjectives like love to other parts of our life which where the non-rational uh, motivations are much more important. And uh, I do think we should find a job that we like, and there will be jobs that we like more than others, but in the end of the day, is a job. And, uh, and the problem with those messages is that uh, sometimes they, they create the, the wrong uh, feeling that if, you're, if you don't find a job where you're extremely happy about, it's because you're not working enough. And, and, and that is far from being true in, in the majority of cases. You're exposed to luck factors from personal life factors. And sometimes you're going to have to work on a, on a job that you're okay, but you're not fantastically uh, overexcited about. But that's fine. Like if you have other areas of your life that keep you going on and, uh, and motivated. Um, so not having like a rigid uh, idea of how your career will unfold is, is, is uh, I think, a very good uh, uh, thing to keep in mind. Second, like we, we, we are changing the way we find jobs and the way we, we apply for jobs and the way we transition from jobs. And I can speak for myself that I was trained uh, from my generation, we were taught that we should think about our careers on, by ourselves. And that, that does not work anymore on these days. Like we, we cannot carry that weight uh, alone. So supervision and mentoring are very important factors. So uh, in addition to you thinking about your career, do get advice from your supervisors and mentors. And also, um, good career management tools go much more beyond supervision and mentoring. Do learn about areas like career advice, career counseling, career coaching. Try to find out what are the best sources for all these areas and how, what is the differences between all these different areas and how they can be useful at different stages of your life. And avoid that stigma of getting help to uh, make your life decisions um, as something that uh, is done only by the weak. Actually, it's the opposite. I've talked to many, many, very, very, very successful people who, in science who 
rely on advisors, counselors, coaches to, to make their decisions or to help them make their decisions. And uh, I think uh, that's the, the second recommendation that I would make. Excellent. That's very, very good advice. Pedro, this was a great pleasure. Uh, there, there was a little, you know, little surprising moments like the, the volleyball aspect, which uh, I found was very, very interesting. Um, I hope you enjoyed our, our chat. Uh, I really think you have a great project. I hope it goes far. And uh, you have a very inspiring career path. And, uh, and uh, hopefully the listeners will enjoy. And, you know, each of them will take some information that will help them in their path uh, from now on. Yeah, again, uh, thank you very much. Uh, for me, it was uh, quite uh, funny to, to participate in this chat with you. It was, uh, it, uh, it was a nice conversation. And I hope uh, someone uh, that listens uh, for the past podcast feels inspired as well. Do you have a, a Twitter handle or uh, another website that you want to, um, to share? I will put your LinkedIn in the show notes. But if you have a Twitter handle or something that you want people to follow... The chaperone is at chaperone.online. And mine, mine, I don't have any problem sharing that, is at pepresent, P-E-P-E-resent. Perfect. So again, I'll put all of that in the show notes and people will be able to, to see what, you, what you're up to. Again, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Papa PhD podcast. Head over to papaphd.com for show notes and for more food for thought about non-academic postgrad careers. I'll always be happy to share inspiring stories, new ideas, and useful resources here on the podcast. So make sure you subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts to always keep up with the discussion and to hear from our latest guests. Papa PhD.